0: Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 16th of October. I'm Robert and I'm joined today by Citizens Party leader, Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, bastard banks headed for bail-in and... The 30-year march into Melbourne's dragged-out lockdown disaster. But, Craig, this is a pretty um, action-packed show today. We've got a lot to go through. Uh, Let's get into it. I just want to mention before we do, though, because we are going to be... It's a bit ambitious. Um, What we cover in the show is reported in the Citizens Party's weekly Australian Alert Service magazine. If you haven't already received a free copy, you're you're invited to call in for a free copy on our toll-free number... And it's elaborate in there. We can't do justice to these subjects on the show, so um, if you want follow-up information, please um, get it from there.
1: And I think it's also important, Robbie, to mention that uh, the Citizens Report won't be shown on, in on the Adelaide C Forty Four program okay. at the end of this um, after the end of this month, and we switch over to the YouTube channel.
0: So okay, so that, that's important. YouTube Channel Forty Four viewers in Adelaide, please start um, going to our YouTube channel. Click the subscribe button and the and the, the bell icon to, for, for updates. Um, because that's where you'll have to watch us after the end of this month. Um, that, that leaves us free to wear in, in uh, Melbourne only, Craig. That's right. Well, that's good because this, this, this show today is for our lockdown free to wear Melbourne viewers. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it. But before we get into lockdown, first, bastard banks headed for bail-in. And there's two things we want to highlight today, which are just reminders of the utter bastardry of the banks and... When you're reminded of that, what you realise, nothing has changed despite the Royal Commission. The banks are the same sick criminal enterprises they always have been, and they're they're not unique. Australian banks are not unique. Globally, the whole banking system is like this, which is why the policy of bail-in was invented in the first place, because it's inevitable you'll have banking crashes, and they're going to make the public pay for, for those crashes through their deposits, rather than reform the banks, right? And that's what we have. We're working with Senator Malcolm Roberts. There's a bill in Parliament. It will be debated on the 30th of November. I'll reiterate this at the end of this segment. But um, what you're about to hear just remind you use it to remind you to make calls, send emails to members of parliament to vote for that bill which will end bail-in in Australia. Here are the two things that have happened that we want to that we want to report this week. A, a good supporter of the Citizens Party in in Sydney, who has a cash and transit business, was debanked this week by Westpac. Now. He's been debanked because he supplies cash to other businesses that the banks have debanked. And these are remittance businesses. And what they do is they send money overseas, right? And often for, you know, um, ethnic communities in Western Sydney and stuff like that. There's a few big ones of these like Western Union, but a lot of little ones. Um, they're all more efficient than the banks. The banks do this for you as well. They do it more efficiently, right? Most most importantly, Craig, they specialise in cash, And that's why the banks are targeting them, but not for the reason you think. Um, All these businesses comply with Austrack. So Austrack is the authority that makes sure money is not used for laundering. They all comply with Austrack. Which businesses in Australia have not complied with Austrack in recent times? The banks, including Westpac, right? They just copped a $1.3 billion fine for not complying with Austrack. They would say that by debanking these cash-based businesses, they're being extra cautious, but that is garbage. What they're doing is self-serving because the banks have a, an agenda at the moment to go cashless. That's a huge agenda of theirs. They admitted a few months ago, for instance, they used the pandemic to achieve in three months what would take five years in terms of going cashless. And they're targeting the companies that are part of the cash economy, gold and silver bullion dealers, Bitcoin traders, remittance companies, etc. And the problem for these companies is they need access to the banks, um, but when the banks act as a group and freeze them out like a cartel, um, they can literally be locked out of the banking system. And if there was no cash in the economy, Craig, they could be locked out of the entire economy. Yeah. Right? Um, now, the banks are pretty ruthless when they do this. Uh, they don't just shut the banks, the, that business's accounts. They shut the accounts of everyone associated with that business, including their family members, etc. Um, and I made a joke when I was talking to um, someone on this the other day. They're so effective in, in finding all the people associated with them, they should be in charge of contract tracing for the pandemic, these banks. Um, so this is, this is again, we've reported this debanking issue in the past. The banks are aggressively doing this, right? And they're doing it to, 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 to further their own agenda, not to protect the public in any way. The second thing is we're going to play a clip now with... as. Regular viewers would know the CEC has this, or the Citizens Party, sorry, has this um, regular show called Citizens Insight, which are lengthy of interviews with experts on different subjects. This week, I interviewed Denise Braley. of the; she's the founder of the Banking and Finance Consumers Support Association, and um, I interviewed her on Scott Morrison's policy to lower bank lending standards to get the economy moving. And we called the interview: Morrison's lower lending standards will send lambs to slaughter. So I asked Denise what she thought of the policy, and this is what she said.
2: Well, for one, I don't think that subprime lending has stopped. There's 80% of it still going according to the sellers. They're still promoting subprime because their target market is still the older people with assets who own their own home. The second point is that the financial products are the problem. They're low-docs and no-docs. You could never pay them off. So low docs and no docs are low lending standards. That's what they are. So if the prime minister suggests that it was okay for lowering lending standards by now way of policy is insane. I mean right now we need long-term policies, we need safer lending products, we need an end to the bad products that are already still there and being sold that lead to financial ruin for thousands and thousands of mostly older Australians. And it's not for the faint-hearted. The plan is desperate decision-making that the Prime Minister is advocating, and it leads to homelessness. We know that. My my files are full of people that had to move out of the home they'd worked for for 40 years and and saved hard for and then uh, have lost their home by talking them into buying a second house to push the construction market.
0: I just wanted to quote Scott Morrison um, the other week, the day he made this announcement, and this is a very revealing quote um, that I want your response to, Denise. He said in justifying this policy to lower lending standards in order to encourage banks to lend more. He said this, quote, it isn't in the bank's interest to lend to someone who can't repay. You've had a lot of experience. Is that true?
2: No, (laughs) it's not in the bank's best interest to actually do anything other than low doc loans. They don't make as much money. I don't know what I'm, the government um, does not understand, and particularly the Prime Minister and Treasurer, they do not understand. It's not in the consumer's best interests to continue with the status quo.
0: So, Craig, there's no doubt this policy will end in tears.
1: Oh, absolutely, Robbie. Look, why don't we debank Westpac? Yeah. Oh, how could you possibly do that? Well, we've... You know, the issue here is bail-in, as you said before when you started. The, the, the idea is the banks want to be in a position that they can actually literally bail in people's deposits. Therefore, you know, they don't want cash, right? They just don't You're want You're trapped
0: it. in the banks without cash.
1: Get trapped in the banks without cash. Now, the point is, if we had a national bank, which is what we've been proposing, we've got legislation for it, you have a publicly owned bank that acts in the public interest and controls the private banks. This is not rocket science. It was done before, particularly... The and it won't
0: be able to discriminate against customers' credit. That's the whole All point. Bank. It would, would not be able to the banking. anymore. And you
1: wouldn't have to fear cash because the public bank would be backed by the assets of the nation as was the original Commonwealth Bank. So, look, there's an entirely different non-profit-based proposal yeah. on the table for a national bank, Robbie, and this, is sol- this will solve the problems. Now, we're in a position right now in history right, where everything is on the table. A lot of countries are talking about the need for a national bank.
0: And that's, that's, yeah. covered, that's covered in this alert yeah, service. Exactly.
1: So that's the solution here. Not allowing the private banks more power and not allow the political parties to give the banks more power. And as Denise Braley has pointed out, the Royal Commission was a farce in terms of really dealing with the criminality of these banks. So a national bank is the solution.
0: Yeah. A national bank will allow you to put credit where it deserves to go in the economy in productive areas that can make wealth Hmm. rather than this harebrained scheme of just letting the banks to go on a lending binge, which we've got to release out on that today. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get onto the lockdown subject. Welcome back to the Citizen's Report. The 30-year march into Melbourne's dragged-out lockdown disaster. Craig, this week the media was pretty pathetic actually. They falsely reported, the headline was, the World Health Organization has changed its mind on lockdowns. No, it has not. However, because of all the animosity between the United States and China and America blaming China for the, for the coronavirus pandemic, the World Health Organization has been collateral damage and, um, you know, you know all Trump's attacks on it, etc. And so people um, just weren't paying attention. The World Health Organisation has never, ever recommended lockdowns as the primary way to control an epidemic. And the WHO special envoy gave an interview with The Spectator this week, which was, which was misinterpreted in the headlines. But this is what he actually said. And we want to play you the interview, the, the, the relevant section here. The middle way
3: is really trying to make certain that we put in place robust defences against this virus so that if it does start to build up anywhere, we can catch it quickly and we can suppress outbreaks fast. To do that, we need really two things. One is very well-organized, localized uh, infectious disease control services. Sometimes they're called public health services. It's not hospitals, but it is testing, contact tracing and isolation. The backbone to controlling this kind of thing is always testing, contact tracing and isolation. The second part of it is involving local actors as much as possible, because trying to do dealing with small spikes of disease is best done locally. It's not best done from some central control centre. And thirdly, it works best if people are as onside as they possibly can be. It does mean really leveling with people saying, actually, the only way we can do this is all of us pulling together. Physical distancing, face protection, hygiene, isolating if we're ill, not going off to work or to the pub if we're feeling rotten, and protecting those who are most at risk. If we can combine those various steps, what we call doing it all in our our organization speak, then we can get on top of it. That's what East Asian countries have done. Indeed what Germany is doing pretty well uh, 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 to, to good effect. That's what parts of Canada are doing. And that's the approach that we believe should be adopted. We think lockdowns only serve one purpose and that is to give you a bit of breathing space so you, to stop everything, the virus stops moving. And while you've got that breathing space, you should be really building up your testing, building up your contact tracing, building up your local organisation, so that as you release lockdown, you're bound to get more cases, but you can do with it really, really elegantly. I want to say it again, Uh, we in the World Health Organisation do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of this virus. The only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganise, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted, But by and large, we'd rather not do it.
0: So that statement actually reveals why Melbourne is now in week 14 of a dragged out lockdown. Because the Andrews government, unlike what the WHO recommends, has used lockdown as its primary tool to control the virus. And we know we're here. (laughs) But it still has not properly upgraded the public health infectious disease controls that are the real way to control the virus to the point where the government has any confidence in them. That's the problem. The government has no confidence in their own systems. Who's to blame for this? Well, it's not just one person. This is 30 years of Labor and Liberal governments going back to Jeff Kennett. We'll start at Kennett first and and work our way forward. Um, uh, I moved to Melbourne in uh, January 1993 from Queensland. Craig, you moved uh, what 92. a few months earlier, yeah. late 1992. Um, Jeff Kennett was elected in 1992. We lived through this. Um, what he did to this to this state. He in the 1990s he massacred. Victoria's public health system, he shut 17 hospitals, he sacked 3,500 nurses, and that was part of a broader assault on everything public service, like there was 45,000 public servants sacked was, in total and stuff like that. It's all part right? of Project
1: Victoria, basically, to strip out the pri- the publicly owned assets infrastructure and sell it off wholesale to the private companies
0: and institutions. And, you, and, you, and what you said there, Craig, Project Victoria, what, what Craig just said, is a document Right. an actual document that was written for Kennett before he got elected by the Institute of Public Affairs and the, and another neoliberal think tank called the, the, um, the Tasman Institute, right? And just remember that when you see the Institute of Public Affairs jumping up and down now about what Dan Andrews is doing. What I'm about to tell you is they laid the foundation for this back then with Kennett, right? So one of the hospitals Kennett shut was the Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital out here in um, Fairfield, which is on the Yarra River, um, it, was, it was shut in 1996 on the recommendation of the Metropolitan Hospitals Planning Board, and it recommended shut the hospital and tender out its specialist services. Now, this is a 92-year-old institution that treated and quarantined patients, conducted world-leading research into infectious diseases, and at the time, it was, the AIDS was the big one, um, and directed the infectious diseases controls for the state. Right? It was a dedicated massive institution for that that was all shut and it's and its functions were um, tendered out the board that recommended it was chaired by Professor Ian Harper and professor Ian Harper is an economist from the Reserve Bank he's on the Reserve Bank board today he, he's, he's a product of the Reserve Bank plus he's he was traveling in the same circles as, as the IPA etc all right those guys so he was he was one of them made this recommendation and what we say in the we have an article about this in the alert service this week um, Melbourne's drawn out lockdown as a multi-decade policy failure. The point we make is the the, 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 the upshot of all this, Craig, was that um, Jeff Kennett force marched Victoria down the path of privatising, outsourcing, rationalising, downsizing and centralising. The last one's a very important one, Robbie, because look, uh, Scott Morrison's many
1: times said, oh, New South Wales has the gold standard for, for contact tracing. It's good reason for that. Because they didn't centralise, for, I don't know why, but yep. they didn't decentralise. Uh, centralise, they, they remain decentralised, and they actually have a plan to this very day of supporting the development of very talented or very necessary, high, highly skilled public health officials. And, you know, they actually recruit postgrad, you know, doctors and so forth, and they actually intern them in the public health system.
0: I think, find, Craig, I think you'll find, Craig, I think you'll find just that difference. It's not like the New South Wales has had great governments compared to no, Victoria. No. What Kennett did was so radical, people yep. forget how brutal it was, right, yep. at the time. Just, and what you, the, one of the worst things you can say about subsequent Labor governments, they didn't reverse it, and in many respects they bought into the mentality behind it. And that's what we're going to talk about after the break. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to The Citizen's Report, where we're discussing Melbourne's dragged out lockdown disaster. Um, And now we are going to blame Dan the man. (laughs) Uh, For this reason, there's been since the Kennett decade, only three of the subsequent 20 years have been Liberal governments. Mm -hmm. The rest have been Labor and dominated by Dan Andrews. And from 2007 to 2010, he was the health minister. And then from 2014 to now, he's been the premier, right? So this part of it is on him um, and you can see that in some of the, it's not that he's done everything um, bad by any means, right? You know, you could say like, like the Monty Python boys, nobody expected the, the pandemic, <laughs> um, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition, but it is here, but it's, there was warning signs though, right? And that's what he, he can't be let off the hook for. Um, in 2019, the Victorian Health Department, which is called the Department of Health and Human Services, there was an internal memo warning the government about how under-resourced the public health unit was. That thing that that Nabarro said was the most important. Completely under-resourced compared to New South Wales and and Queensland, right? And they they mentioned the centralisation factor, but it's just the staffing. Hmm. At the time of the warning, there were six nurses and seven doctors in this unit. The year before, they'd had a total staff of 20, by the time the pandemic arrived in, in March, that was 14 staff. So that had to be geared up, but from a very, very low base, right, and a centralised system, and it's been pathetic. That's, that's, that's a huge problem. With
1: no IT, Robbie, no computer systems. So mostly it was pen and paper, which is absurd. Yeah. Because there was this is a centralised model, which means you can get away with shrinking everything down when there's not a problem. But as soon as you have a widespread problem, you've got no infrastructure, and that's what's happened in Victoria. And the
0: trick of, the trick of tracing testing and tracing is you've got to tell people straight away what their results are so they can tell all the people around them straight away, right? And you can control it that way. People in Victoria have been waiting weeks to find out what's going on. And, right? Robbie,
1: the, the, the degree of the, <coughs> the disaster is not just in the public health system, it's actually expanded because all these policies, like even the policies of the financial institutions, the banks of, you know, creating unaffordable un- housing. One of the frustrations I saw on the face of the Chief Health Officer here, Brett Sutton, this week was the fact that, what's the difference between New South Wales and and Victoria? He said, well, it's the households. You know, they say the average household in Victoria is 2.5, but our experience with these recent outbreaks is not the case. The woman that actually infected the butcher shop in Chadston, they're trying to actually ascertain whether actually eight people lived in that household. And generally speaking, the the huge, large households are due to the fact that the housing has become so unaffordable that people have got to cram together. That's another major vector for a very
0: infectious disease. So it's... No, good point, Craig. It ref- so there's a, it's multidimensional. It reflects the general problems in the economy, like the housing bubble, um, but also reflects these specific decisions. And I want to highlight a couple of them that, that um, where Andrews, the mentality of the Andrews government has been a continuation of this, of this uh, outsourcing, rationalising thing that, that Kennett started. So, for instance, um, everyone knows notoriously the Andrews government outsourced hotel security to private security firms, right? And that's blown up in his face and that's the big scandal. However, less well known is that when the pandemic hit, the government, as a knee-jerk reflex, they outsourced because that's what they do, consultation and management of this pandemic to one of the big four global accounting and consulting firms, KPMG.
1: And the reason that's a knee-jerk, Robert, is because there's no infrastructure in the public health system to fall back on.
0: Yeah, it's all been stripped it. out. Yep. So
1: where they, are they going to get it? There's, there's a major...
0: You know, cost. Well, people, also, Craig, people exploit that. So, for instance, yeah. the, 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 um, the, the partner at KPMG who is in charge of the Victoria government account is formerly an executive from Victoria's health department. Her name's Elise Werry.
1: Who would have been... That's well, a huge conflict of interest. That's right. I mean, these, these are the public health officials who would have been in there, possibly recommending outsourcing. I don't know, but you can see how the mentality, yeah, yeah. The, the what you're talking about or getting to, is this mentality that's crept into the government since the Kennett years that anything to do with you know making a buck at the expense of the public health or the public interest is allowed to prevail, and now it's come
0: back to haunt us. And we don't, we what we, we don't know if they were involved in the hotel decision. What we do know they were involved in is the gearing up of the testing. Tracing and isolation system. In other words, the most important part of controlling a pandemic, which had to be geared up from this very tiny base, KPMG was involved in managing that. Which, again, is a cost-benefit analysis. That's their basis. That exactly. Well, and it's been a failure, right? We're at this point. We, we, were not, we didn't complain like most of the state hasn't complained in, in July and August, right, when cases were rising and infections were rising and deaths were rising, hospitalizations were rising, um, didn't complain, Right? But now it's really low cases, and this is being dragged out because they don't have confidence in this system. And when Brett Sutton this week was asked about the Chadston outbreak and why they didn't do a mass testing of that area, he said, oh, the scale of that testing that would be required would not represent value for money. <laughs> and when I heard that, that's what I saw red. Because at this stage, after 14 weeks, we're not interested in value for money. We're interested in getting the job done. The whole state wants to get the job done. Contrast that to the East Asian countries that, that, that Dr. Navarro talked about. Look at China. They had you know, the start of the outbreak. Look at their curve now. It's been dead flat ever since. They had an outbreak of, of, in a city this week, Craig, of 9 million people. 12, they, they detected 12, 12 cases. Sorry, my fingers. What did they do? In five days, they, did, they tested all 9 million people because the science of controlling infectious diseases is... Testing, contract tracing and um, uh, isolation, not lockdowns.
1: I think you've elaborated the case, Robbie, why this entire neoliberalism agenda for the last 20 to 30 years has absolutely been a disaster. And we've written a lot about this too.
0: And I must say, to quote Shakespeare, a pox <laughs> on both their houses. Exactly. Right? So when these late liberal guys are jumping up and down, they've got no credibility either. We've got to overhaul the entire system. That's what the Citizens Party is committed to. So join the fight. Tune in next week for more. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thanks, Robbie.